Noel, thank you for getting us started. We are going to look at worship today. Uh, we've gone A down to uh, down to W, and the only the lesson that I'll have left is X, Y, and Z. <laughs> I really have to stretch on those, but. Uh, but uh, W, uh, we had a lot of choices. But I thought I'd talk about worship, and I'm actually going to talk from Exodus 20, but uh, we'll get there in a minute, if you will. I've been, uh, I've been a pastor since 1985, but worked in churches uh, way back into the early 70s. Most of you have been in churches also... Uh, and probably our kind of churches. Let's say, you know, that uh, every church is a little bit different, but um, we've seen a lot in our lifetime. Uh, I turned uh, 66, what, two weeks ago or something like that. So I'm on Route 66 this year. And, uh, and some of you have me by, you know, 15 to 20 years. And so you've seen even more. But... Uh, I have all my life been burdened about this subject of worship and about where our churches are. Uh, the unfortunate thing about that is when I was a younger man, you know, pastoring in my th late 20s, I was teaching school in my late 20s, and pastoring in, I, went, I started pastoring full-time anyway when I was 35. So you feel like a young man and, and you can speak to a younger generation a lot easier. You know what I mean, don't you? And, of course, your kids are not even grown yet, so, uh, you know, you don't even have to explain things to your kids at that age. But as time has gone on and we've gone through this whole generation and now, uh, you know, we're looking at uh, more at the end of our lives than at the beginning, and we realize that the whole worship of the church and the direction of the churches is going to be handed off to another generation, maybe two generations beyond us. Uh, and we look at it and we see some positive things and we see some negative things and some real concerns. Um, before we go to this text, let me, let me give you, um, let's see, six things that I think have affected worship in our lifetime. And I think these are, are things of concern. Now, you know, I'm speaking, to, I'm speaking to the adult Bible class in our church. And so we're all uh, my age or, or older. Uh, this is being recorded. It'll be on our website. Somebody may be listening to this who's not in this class and maybe uh, coming from a totally different perspective. I don't know. So for now, I'm just, I'm just talking uh, to people, I think, who are like-minded. That's why we're in a church together. The first thing that I would say that has affected our worship in my lifetime is the 1960s. How many of you remember that? <laughs> of course you do. And I was born in 1950, so the 60s were my teenage years and my high school years and so forth. And so I think I know whereof I speak. <laughs> my, my mother was, a, was the... Uh, language, head of the language arts department in the public high school where I went. My dad taught in the university there in Ohio. And so uh, I was well aware of things going on in schools and what was happening during those days. And, uh, you know, 
I, one, the reason I say this affects our worship is the next generation, my kids' generation, my, my kids are just now, and I have four, Rebecca is just now approaching 40 years old. So they're all in their 30s, and uh, they never knew that time. Rebecca was born in 1976. You know, she was a bicentennial baby. And so she didn't even know the 70s. So uh, what happened and the change that happened in our world and in our country in the 1960s, the current generation and the generation that we're going to hand our churches over to never saw that, never experienced it. And I'm saying to you, let me put one more thing in there. It, years ago, I really got into reading about the, uh, what we call the post-Christian and the post-modern society. And post-modernism is a term that was used to describe what has happened in America. We are post-modern. We are post-Christian, meaning we're beyond those things. And even secular writers pointed back to the 60s and said it changed in the 60s. And from the 60s up to the 70s, or, or I mean 80, uh, I'm thinking 87, but up through the 80s, uh, those 20 years changed America. Now, you have to go back to the 60s to understand that and see it. And if you lived in the 60s and experience life at all before Woodstock, let's say, before the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., and before the Beatles, and before Mick Jaggard, and before the hippie, drug, free love generation. You know, if you can remember that time or knew that time, you know the change that has taken place during those years. For me, it was, one of the things I remember is, you know, I went 12 years of school with the same kids, did you? You know, in a, in a town you grew up in, you know, through, through grade school, and then we all went to the same high school together and all graduated together. Uh, I knew these kids when we were kindergartners, you know, and grew up with them. And all of it was as if in the 60s, one day they went home, and the kids that came to school the next day, I didn't even know. I mean, the change seemed like that. Just all of a sudden, the rebellion, the signs of the rebellion from the drug culture to the hair to the miniskirts, to the, you know, to the free love and all of that, it, it all just came in like a flood and changed us immediately. And the kids that I knew growing up with, I didn't know anymore. And had it not been for the grace of God that in 1966, when I was 16, I found a church with a good youth group and a place to go and some kids there that welcomed me in and my, and my siblings, we would have been lost in that generation too. And my mother, who um, I'll never admit this beyond this uh, crowd, but she was an English teacher, so, you know, I barely passed. But... But she, she said the only reason she stayed in the public school teaching, she did until all of her kids were through high school. And then she said, I can't take any more. <laughs> but she wanted to know what was going on while we were in school. And she was one of the favorite teachers in the, in the school anyway at that time. She had a saying about the hippie kids of, her, of that generation, my generation, your generation. 
that uh, you, she said, you know, I can bring them in and I can talk to them about drugs. I can talk to them about sex. I can talk to them about, you know, their hippie rebellion and all of this. But she said, the one th there's one thing I cannot talk to them about, and that's their music. She said, when I begin to talk to them about their music, she, she described it as this invisible shield comes down over their face, and it's kind of like out of bounds. You can't talk to me about that. And you know what? That, that's true. I've often thought of that expression that she gave because that generation, my generation that grew up with that, still is that way. You can't talk to them about their music. Now, if we're going to say about worship in our generation that music has become the biggest element in contemporary worship, then that's where it came from. So I say the 60s changed it. Number, number two, we have wallpaper music today. I mean by that, you cannot go anywhere in this world without the noise, without something blaring in the background. I thought of that this week because I'm, uh, we were up in Chicago, you know, with our kids. Matt and Tara say hi. They're doing fine. But little Isaiah is just two, he's two years old now, you know. You have to go there so they get to know their grandpa again. You know, that's, that was my objective. And Gabriel's starting school this fall, so he's, he's in school. And, um, you know, I just happened to notice because we went, we probably ate out three or four times, uh, you know, in the days that we were up there, we went to two different malls to walk around, do things, play with the kids and all. And virtually everywhere I went, you know, now I'm getting hard of hearing, right? So if I wear these, uh, these hearing aids, if I'm in a restaurant that's playing music, all the music's louder, <laughs> you know? So if I don't wear them, I can't hear the person across the table from me. But if I turn them up, I, I can hear everything. You know how it is. But everywhere you go, folks, the world is wallpapered with sound, with music. And, it, and it, you know what kind of music it is? The kind that came from the 60s. Now, sure, it's, it's, it's changed and it, it's contemporary with people today, but we didn't have it before then, is my point. And our, the generations that have come after us grow up with that noise constantly. The next time you're watching TV and a commercial comes on, you just notice. There's no such thing as a commercial with just talk. Here's my product. I want to sell it to you. It will be noise. I, if it were not for the mute button on my remote, I would go crazy already. You know, but I can make it through the commercial time because I can mute it. The noise just in, is just in, increasing. But you know what? I remember checking out at, uh, I was checking out at Lowe's not long ago. And, um, and I was behind this guy and, and, and he was talking with the, the young man at the register, younger guy anyway. And there was noise going on at Lowe's, of course, music, something coming over. And then there was some kind of announcement. Somebody was making an announcement over the PA. And anyway, the guy who was checking out said, what was that? I can't hear it. And the guy checking out said, oh, you know, uh, here's what it was. He says, you know, uh, old people today uh, can't, I think he either used the word multitask or 
can't handle two things at once, you know? All right, here's the noise, here's the announcement, and I'm talking to you, and I've got my earphones on, you know? So, you know, I can do everything at once. So he's kind of making fun of a generation that can't handle that. And there's a way in which we can't handle it. I don't know if that's good or bad. I just know that, that uh, it bugs me, <laughs> you know, uh, to have noise that I don't need. <clears throat> well, that, I noticed that this week. I have been to, I've been to England ten times. I've been to Russia a number of times. I've been to Taiwan. I've been to India. I've been to Israel and Greece. And I'm telling you, I go nowhere in this world without the same phenomenon. Everywhere you go is the same noise. And the same kind of noise around you that is speaking, probably cursing, and things that I may not even understand because it's a different language, but you can kind of tell the way people are talking. So we have that wallpaper. I need to move on. Third thing is what people, I have heard this expression a number of times, called chronological snobbery. <laughs> chronological snobbery. I think even C.S. Lewis maybe used that term first. And that is, as you grow older, you know less. And the older things are, the worse they are. And the newer they are, the better they are. Just the way it is. And so if you have if you have newer worship, it's better. Why? Because it's newer. If you have older worship, it's not as good. And why? Because it's older. And I think it was C.S. Lewis that I first read. Probably somebody else had used the term, but he, he called it chronological snobbery. <laughs> if it's older, it's just not as good. And so don't we have today kind of a mentality in our, in our generation that if it's newer, it's got to be better. If you have something that's a little older, if you have a cell phone, folks, <laughs> that you got last year, sorry, you need to trade it in. Hey, come on, you guys with flip phones really need to get a... <laughs> you. How can you have a QT app and get your free hot dog, James? Come on. <laughs> so you know what I mean, uh, you know, and... and and in some ways, newer is better. I would rather have a flush toilet than an outhouse. I mean, I, you know, I know the difference. But some things are not so good. And some things, even if the Bible is true, that we're going to come to a day of, of an apostasy, a growing apostasy in the world, newer will not be better in many, many ways. And you and I know that. Fourthly, technology. Technology is good, and technology is bad. <laughs> technology can help us a lot. Technology can ruin you. But we, it seems like today that we cannot have worship without technology. And it's good in some ways, in the sense that I'm talking through a microphone right now. And probably wouldn't need to in the room that we're in right here. Spurgeon one time preached to 25,000 people without a microphone. And he did it. <laughs> and probably a lot more effective than I would, <laughs> than I could do in this room even. 
And this is, going, this is being recorded on a computer, which is going to be handed to me on a thumb drive after the service, and I'll go home and put it on a website, and somebody on the other side of the world can hear what I'm saying right now, and that, in a few hours from now. And that, if you think that's not scary... <laughs> So technology is good in many ways. I'd rather have air conditioning. I'd rather have heating and, and so forth. But technology is not so good in a lot of different ways. Um, the pornography that it brings to our generation is ruining a generation of kids. The, the commercialism and the sales and, the, and all of that and the uh, intrusion into our lives and private lives uh, and the rest. Uh, how, how does ISIS plan its next terrorist attack because of technology? And how do they escape being captured by people who are listening? Because of their technology. It's whoever can do the best job of it. All right. So, you know, in the older churches, you had you had images, not technology, but you had everything from stained glass to incense to steeples to transit. Uh, you know, the whole the old cathedrals were built like a cross. You know, you had the the main uh, hallway going this way, and the, uh, I forget what they call it the narthex or whatever went across it this way. And it sh if you were looking down on that cathedral, you looked down on the cross, so they were worshiping in the cross, so to speak. So you had the statues, you had all of that that went along with it, but the, the images that were built into those, and they're beautiful old buildings if you've ever seen them, soon became icons, and the icons soon became idols. And, they had, and so we had to go back to plain and simple worship because all of the technology, even of the old cathedrals, led people away from God, not to God. And it will happen today. The technology, the, uh, if you ask me, and all of the production that is put on is the new image of the church. And it can soon turn into idolatry too. The images, the screens, the noise, the smoke, the whatever else goes on. You can tell my age now, can't you? All right, so hang with me. Um, one, two, three, four, five. I can still count. Uh, number five, an emphasis on administration more than preaching. An emphasis on administration. When I was a young man in seminary back in the early 70s at Central Seminary up in Minnesota, the president of the seminary is Dr. Clearwaters, great man. That, that seminary is still there, and the church that he pastored, Fourth Baptist Church, Minneapolis, still a great church. But he used to say to us as young men, he said, more of you young men are going to fail in administration than in preaching. But he was coming from a generation long before mine. He was born in 1900, I think it was. That where basically that's what happened. Pre guys could preach, but as new things were going on and churches needed to build buildings and change and expand and do various things, the administrative part of it was what lacked. A lot of guys could preach well. They couldn't administrate the, the business of the church as well. And you know what? He was right about that, about our generation, I think, because that's probably true of all of us. But, you know, uh, for, for 10 years, I taught a church administration class up at the seminary in, in Iowa. 
and I'm done with it now. But I used to give that illustration when I started the class with the young men these days. And I would say to them, but I'm going to turn that around and say to you, more of you are going to fail in preaching than in administration. You will know how to administrate out the ears. And that's where you'll spend your time. You will know how to put a production together. You'll know how to put the whole thing, you know, have the whole uh, uh, organization and built on a pyramid or built on an inverted pyramid or however you want to administrate it. And you'll be great administrators, but I wonder if you'll preach the word of God. And I think that has changed. Methodology is the big thing. How do you get it done? How do you build a church? And I think one of our problems is we're worried about how to build a church. Does that sound crazy? It's, we're not here, folks, to build a church. We're here to worship God and do what God wants us to do. And what we trust is that God will build his church if we're going to do the right thing to do, be doing the right thing. But if we're here to build a church, then there's methodology to build it. You can go to a thousand seminars right now all over the country and find out how to get a big crowd, how, to, how we could have more people in this room, how we could attract more people in our generation, how, how we could do things to build it. And this generation is really good at administrating that kind of thing. So the methodology is there. The mission statements, the vision statements, I'm very concerned about. Maybe I'm old-fashioned in that way, but, but vision statements have too often turned into, well, you know, I'm your leader, and God's given me this vision. And so here's what we're going to do. And you know what? You would have every right to question that. Now, if, it, if it's based on the Word of God, and it's what the Bible says we should be doing, then fine, let's do it. But I don't call that a vision statement unless you call this word of God our vision, which I basically do. But too often men mean something like, well, I, I went to the mountain and I prayed until God revealed to me what we should do. And then I came back and told you what God revealed to me, what we should do. And who are you to withstand God? If you say, well, pastor, I don't think we should be doing that. And I say, well, God revealed this vision. This is my vision from God. What, what can you say to that? You can't say anything to it. But if you say, you know, it doesn't seem to square with the word of God. I think maybe we should be doing it this way. Then everybody has to listen, right? So I think that's hurt us. And then uh, under this administrative thing, the, the success orientation we must be successful. We cannot be seen by our generation or by the world as not being successful. And so if somebody walks into our church and looks at us and we don't look successful, then we have not done our job and we're not pleasing to God. And so success becomes the standard of everything that we do. Now, we, we, if we define success and define it the right way, fine. But you know what I mean by that. All right, one last thing up there before I get to my lesson. <laughs> and that is the, the, the sixth thing, non-denominationalism. Non-denominationalism. 
and you've heard me speak to this before, but folks, it, it is not going to do us good to lose our denominational distinctives. I can say as a Baptist, I wish everyone were a Baptist, and I think everyone ought to be a Baptist. <laughs> but I'm glad for the people who, who are not and admit it and put up on their sign what they are. Why be ashamed of that? If you are a Presbyterian, and you are that because you're an elder-run church, and you get your name Presbyterian from the word for elder, Presbyteros, then put that on the name and, and tell people what they are before they come in the door. We are a Baptist church, which means we preach adult salvation and baptism only of adult converts. And so for 500 years, we've had that name Baptist because that's what it means. We put it on our sign. Now, what if we don't have it on our sign? And why, why do you not have it on your sign? I'll tell you why. Because this generation, the world of lost people, doesn't like them. And so we think that if they come into our church, that if we have that name out there, that it's a big negative to a visitor that comes into our church. Number one, I tell you, that's not so. They don't care. Number one, they either don't care because they don't know, and they have all kinds of symbols and signs they wear all over their body anyway. They don't care about symbols and signs. But the other thing is that uh, if they do know, they know something about us before they ever walk through the front door. And what's wrong with that? I would like them to know a lot about us before they come through the front door. And then it makes my job a lot easier. I, it takes a lot less explaining who we are. And so denominational names had a great function in America's history and, and Christian history because it tells people a lot about you before they ever come to your church. Or know it. And in my opinion, uh, a few generations ago, people lived in neighborhoods and they knew their neighborhood, you know, they're Methodist and they're Presbyterian and they're Baptist and they're Catholic and they're, you know, and they were fine with it. They even sometimes joked at each other about it, you know, and laughed at each other for their denominational distinctions. And they were fine, and they were good neighbors. Nowadays, don't ever tell anybody what, what we are. I, I, I know I've told this story before, but out in Colorado, I pastored out there, and there was an Assembly of God church, and I knew a lot of the people in the church. We played uh, volleyball and softball, in, you know, in a church league, and I knew a lot of these people. Anyway, they, they, uh, uh, it was First Assembly of God. They left, their, uh, they left their building and built a beautiful, huge, huge building. They, they had thousands of people coming after they built this building. But they dropped their denominational name. It was no longer something Assembly of God. Uh, I think I can say this if you're listening in Colorado. Turn your, you know. But uh, there was, a, big, there was a, a road that went east of town called Timberline. And so they named their church Timberline Church. Is on that road. So some years went by, and it, they were still an Assembly of God church, but you didn't know it. And so we had some people come and visit our church, a couple, who then were interested in joining our church. And so when I met with them, I talked with them. I said, where do you go? Where, or do you remember somewhere now? Oh, yeah, Timberline Church. I said, oh, so you, you're Assembly of God people. They said, what? I said, I said, you're Assembly of God. They said, no, we're not. 
we go to Timberline. I said, yeah, and Timberline's an Assembly of God church. No, you know, and, and they were amazed that they have been in the church that long, and which was still legally and by their constitution, the Assembly of God church. And they had no idea. So is that better or is that worse? You know, so you, you have a hidden doctrine in this non-denominationalism so that People, you don't tell people your doctrine up front. You don't tell them things that you believe until you get them in a little farther, and then you begin to reveal those things to them, kind of like cults do, you know. There's an emphasis on unity more than purity. So rather than being pure before our God and with what we are and what we believe, it's unity with everybody is more important than purity. And ecumenicalism itself it could be good used in the right way, but it's mostly not good. Ecumenicalism. And you know that one day, if we live in the end times, the Antichrist is going to build a one world church on ecumenicalism. Are we in the last days? We don't know that for sure, do we? But if the rapture happened today, that ecumenical church would be controlling the whole world three and a half years from right now. Could that happen? And I say, absolutely, because we're already, in our mindset, way down that road. So those factors, and probably more, I'm saying these six things that I've taken too much time with this morning, uh, these things have greatly affected the worship today. And, and how a church worships to where... Even the generations who will now control the churches and run the churches after we're gone never saw the change, never knew a world before these changes, never knew what would is, it, it, the church has been like for 2,000 years, never know it. And then add to that, by the way, a rewriting of history, which, of course, is going on in the world to where uh, even the history books are being rewritten. Even the heroes of the faith become villains of the faith. Just like the heroes of our country and our forefathers, they become bad guys. And the generation believes all of that because it's being rewritten for them. And so they never will know it. They never will see it. But for, for those of us who, who lived through a change called the 1960s, you saw it before and after. And you remember the change that happened. And you can't go back there. It, it will not turn around and go back. We have, we have to be the church in this world where we live right now. Now, in Exodus chapter 20, what I have here and have had, and I'm, I'll do an abbreviated, I guess, uh, lesson about it, is a lesson from Exodus 20 where, where the Israelites receive the law, including the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, from Mount Sinai. Does that sound like an odd place to talk about worship? <laughs> it might, except that, re remember, I understand that we're talking about the dispensation of law. We're talking about how the Israelites practiced here, and we are the church, and, and we don't mix Israel and the church in our theology. I understand that. But God is God, and God doesn't change. And even though he's going to require things of Israel that are not required of us necessarily, uh, we don't have sacrifices, we don't have priests, 
we don't even keep the Sabbath and those kinds of things anymore. But God is still God. And the principles that he's asking of these people, even back then, the principles are still throughout the Scripture. And so, first, as you, as you look at chapter 20, you'll see the Ten Commandments starting uh, with verse 2, I am the Lord your God, and in verse 3, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And you can number the Ten Commandments all the way down through verse 17, which is the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet. So you have all, all the Ten Commandments there. You can see them easily. Then uh, you have a description from the end of the chapter of what's going on at Mount Sinai and what God is saying to Moses about now here's how you're going to worship me, here's how you're going to live and carry out these commandments and so forth. And uh, let me begin reading verse 18 real quickly. All the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off and said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God has come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces that you sin not. And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near into the thick darkness where God was. Now, you can go, to, by the way, to uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and get a New Testament description of that was Mount Sinai. We are come unto Mount Zion, to a heavenly Jerusalem. Okay, and I understand that. But there are a few things mentioned here, and the first one is God himself. In verses 22 and 23, the Lord said unto Moses, Thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make... With me, gods of silver, neither shall you make gods of gold, and so forth. Back up to verse, uh, you know, up above to the uh, description uh, of verse 4 and so forth. You don't make images of God because God cannot be worshipped with image. We need to remember, folks, that our worship, is, even as we come together in a church, the worship isn't the thing. I say that right. God is the thing. You've heard me say, we don't come together to worship. We are worshipers who come together. We don't come together to create a show. And we have this show, and we put it together like a concert or like a movie or something. And you come and you watch our show, and you say, oh, boy, that was good. And you go away and you say, I've worshipped. You may not have worshipped at all. We come together as people of God to recognize who God is and the privilege that he has given to us of even coming before him. Here is Moses who's going up to talk with God and coming back to talk with the people. And, and, and uh, we praise the Lord for our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came from God and told us things that we need to know. And, we, and our worship is involved in that knowledge. And that's why the main thing in this room is this pulpit and this book. Because basically we are looking at what God has told us and praising him for the truth that he's given to us. It's not how we sing. It's not whether or not our, we have something projected on the wall or not or whether we have a microphone or not or whether we have special music today or not. All of it's good if we can do it and do it fine and do it well. That's not our worship. Our worship is, what has God said to us, and do we understand it? Okay, so there is a God here. 
does it. And, uh, you know, one commentator said, a heavenly being can be pictured by no earthly material. That's what God is saying here. Don't make graven images of me. You can't depict me with earthly material. And I say we have to be very careful in all of our world of technology of thinking that we have somehow created these images that are like God. I'm sure everyone would deny it, but this is the way it is. We have two things in our worship that God gave us that are images of truth. One is baptism, the other is the Lord's Supper. Baptism is a picture, is a, is a production, you might say, a, a, a living illustration of death, burial, and resurrection. The Lord's Supper is a picture, a memorial of body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, God's given those to the churches, and we do them, and I think all churches, at least evangelical churches, still do. And yet, even at that, we say, this isn't the body, this isn't the blood, like the Catholics do. We say, this just reminds me of the truth of what happened to me. That's the worship. All right, secondly, there's the altar described in, in verse 25, an altar of stone. And I'll just make this comment about it. God said, don't touch it with a chisel and a hammer. Don't carve it. I don't want your artwork on my altar. I don't want you to try to, to make it out of, out of your skill. Put the stones together and leave them like I made them. It's kind of amazing. You know, even uh, in Athens, Paul stood up before all these beautiful structures in Athens of his day and the Acropolis and all of that and said, God is not worshipped with the art of men's hands. And by the way, the art in Revelation 17, the word art is the word technes. <laughs> we get our word technology from it. Interesting, because it's things we do, we make. God said, I don't, I'm not worshipped with what you make by your hands. And so he said, when you build this altar, don't, don't chisel on it, because I don't want your skill involved in it. Isn't that something? There's a, the third thing uh, is the offering itself in verse 24, where there were two kinds of offerings. One was a burnt offering, and one was a peace offering. And, and to make a long story short, the burnt offering had to do with the forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. The second offering, the peace offering and the thank offering, were things then, once your sin is atoned, now you can bring these offerings before the Lord to thank Him for what He's done for you. And so the application is pretty easy, and that is you can't worship God without the blood being applied to you, can you? You, you, don't know, you have no worship with God unless your sins are forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the burnt offering for you. But then after that, there are offerings that we bring. And, and uh, the New Testament office speaks about uh, bring the sacrifice of praise and of your lips to God. And so now the life that we live becomes our peace offerings and our thank offerings. And we, we offer him those things. So there are two kinds of offerings. Then the last thing in verse 26 is the worshiper himself. Neither shalt thou go up by steps unto mine altar that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. Ooh, that doesn't go over well in our day. But you know what he's saying here? <laughs> Can you picture it? There were steps that went up to the, the altar of sacrifice, 
But when you come and do this, don't walk up the steps because when you do, your ankles and your calves will be uncovered as you go up the steps, and I don't want that in my worship. Now, he's not saying, ladies, that you have to wear your dresses down to your ankles. But he is saying that in this day of many, we would even call them legalistic things that involved in their worship, here was one thing they did not do. You did not expose yourself, even to that degree, when you're worshiping me. Now think about that for a while. Don't go up on those steps that your nakedness isn't discovered. And we wouldn't even call that nakedness, of course, today. And all I, I think the application is, of course, that we should be um, careful with our and appropriate in the way that we dress, in, in the way that we uh, display our bodies before the Lord, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And all I'm saying is, we aren't too careful these days. Good grief, my, my niece once visited a church out on the East Coast when she was moved out there and she was looking for a church where the people literally came to church in their swimming suits because they, the church was at the beach and they were going to the beach right after church. But hey, you got to accommodate the audience, right? And do what they do. And yeah. Well, that's an extreme example, but you, you get the point. So we should be careful. And we don't make it a big deal even about putting coats and ties on in this, in this church. You can come without one if you want. And ladies, you can come in slacks if you want. I mean, we don't, we don't make rules about that or, or things about it. But you know what? I don't think any of us come inappropriately and flaunt before God and people what we shouldn't flaunt. Okay? So uh, I, I think, you know, uh, I've always said if the if the pastor stands up here with a coat and tie on and the ladies who sing on the platform have dresses on and so forth, then the rest of the congregation will take care of itself. <laughs> and it pretty much has, hasn't it? And I like to come on Wednesday night. I don't wear a tie to speak on Wednesday night. I like to wear just a shirt and we're fine. But boy, our generation is an undressed generation. Would you admit at least that much to me? Just in this world, it is an undressed generation. And boy, we better be careful. Because it will affect the churches. So, there's the worshiper who comes to worship before him. Uh, you know, there, there's a British writer named J.S. Whale, I'll, I'll end with this, who said of his own generation, a generation ago, when he, I think this was maybe in the 60s when he wrote this, he said, instead of putting off our shoes from our feet, because the place we stand is holy ground, we are taking nice photographs of the burning bush from suitable angles. We're more concerned with what we look like and how, how we look with our pictures that we take than what we're doing. So, I've said a lot about worship, maybe too much today, but you know my heart about that, and uh, folks, we, we need to pray for our churches, for our church, for our kids, for our grandkids, and, and, and uh, for the church of Jesus Christ in this world uh, in the last days before the coming of, of Christ, that we would be doing what he wants us to do. And so let's do it. 
and let's do it with joy and let's do it with enthusiasm and let's, let's do it with conviction of who we are and what we do and seek to praise and please God in, in all that we do and he will be pleased. Let's pray. Father, now uh, thank you for uh, the time we've had to think through these thoughts and uh, Father, our hearts are humbled before you. We know ourselves. We know our pride. And even as we speak about these things, it's easy to be prideful and say, boy, we're right and anybody else is wrong. So we need humility in all of our lives too. But Father, we have your word and we read it and we try to do what it says. Help us by your spirit. Give us wisdom. And, and as I'm praying uh, with these great folks in this room we're we're older we have kids and grandkids we want them to have churches that are right before you oh father help us to walk right that they may follow good examples and help us father to always be willing to lend a hand and to pull and to help and to counsel and to be humble before uh, this generation too so help us, Father. We need you in these things, and we'll praise you always, and thank you for all the good things you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, and thanks for being in the class this morning.